The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I want to talk today about the Carolingian theologians. Now I said last week, one of, one of the aims of courses like this is to allow you to be able to read these guys and women for yourself and get something from them. To an extent that doesn't apply with the Carolingians, you, I think you will find that the guys we deal with today are on the whole a little bit more obscure than the people we'll be dealing with later on in the course. So it may well be after today's class you think, man, must be mad. I don't want to go off and read this stuff. Um, I have certain sympathy with that. I probably wouldn't read it if I wasn't having to lecture on it either. So um, what I give you today, uh, don't allow this, if you like, to be the test of whether you're interested in reading medieval theology or not. Looking broadly speaking at the period uh, 700 to 900 AD, often dismissed as a period of intellectual sterility, of not really very much going on, the exciting period of the patristic era as well and truly come to an end. We're still awaiting the great um, renaissance of <coughs> the 10th, 11th century, which will, uh, the 11th, 12th century, which will pave the way for the great theological breakthroughs of the later Middle Ages and ultimately for the Reformation. But the period 700 to 900 seems to sit somewhat awkwardly the traditional story is there's just not a lot going on in this period, not a lot of any great significance. I want to argue today that there are a number of things of significance which perhaps if we look back and say, well, now they're outdated, they at least prepare the way in an important fashion for what comes after. That if you hadn't had the developments of the period 700 to 900, you wouldn't have had the rise of great medieval thought in the latter part of the Middle Ages. Europe at this time, of course, is it's the aftermath of the Roman Empire. You have increasing political division between East and West. You have the Frankish kingdoms in the West. You have Rome looking increasingly to the Franks for political support and muscle. And in the East, you have Constantinople. You have the Eastern Church. You have emerging in this period different distinct theological emphases. One of them that we'll talk about in a later class is the filioque clause. The idea that in the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the Spirit doesn't just proceed from the Father, but he also proceeds from the Son. That becomes the standard Western understanding of how the persons in the Trinity relate to each other. East reject that idea. And I think on good ecclesiastical and bad theological grounds, good ecclesiastical grounds is it's sort of, well, nobody knows quite who adds that clause. It's certainly not added. It's added. It's certainly added to the creed rather than part of the original creed. So the East can make a very good case, I think, for saying that the addition of the filioque clause is not a Catholic move. It's a Western move. Having said that, I would want to say that the Filioque Clause is theologically quite important. And while the West may have broken some of the rules to bring it in, 
it was right that they did so. But that's another story that we'll come to uh, a couple of classes down the line. But you have an increasing uh, difference in theological emphases between East and West, matching the difference in political relation. Broadly speaking, the theology in this period, what you have is a group of men pitching themselves as the theological heirs to the fathers. One of the things I want to bring out today is what is going on in this period is a wrestling with how to relate to the church fathers. How do we understand what the church fathers were saying to relate to the present day? And I think one can draw interesting parallels between uh, what the Carolingians do and what has happened throughout church history. We think of the elements of reform tradition. How does 20th century reform, 21st century reform theology relate to the reformers of the 16th and the 17th century? Everybody's reformed, and yet different attitudes and approaches are taken to the reform theology of the 16th and 17th century. And I think we can see, we will see, hopefully, parallels. Those who look back to the fathers and see a consistent testimony. Those who look back to the fathers and realise that there are differences between them and there's a need for a critical appropriation of what the fathers are doing. The most obvious difference, I suppose, is the linguistic one. Those who have Latin will tend to increasingly look to the Western fathers because those are the ones they can read and understand. Those who have Greek will tend to look to the Greek fathers because those are the ones they can read and understand. And so the different emphases between East and West that are reflected in Latin fathers and Greek fathers slowly become codified, if you like, in two separate church traditions. One of the, a very stimulating essay on this, actually, is the chapter in Evans by Wilhelmine Otten from the University of Utrecht, uh, where she really talks there somewhat about the theology, but her primary interest in that chapter is showing how the Carolingians related in different ways to patristic testimony. So I would suggest that uh, one of the things... Did I set it as a reading last week? Yeah. Chapter by Wilhelmine Otten? Did I? I signed Augustine. Um, I couldn't remember whether I was getting you to read in advance or in retrospect. I've obviously gone for the retrospect option. Next week's reading, then, I think, will be to read Wilhelmine Otten's chapter on the Carolingians, uh, which will uh, elaborate on a few of the points I'm making today. So for next week, if you can get hold of Evans um, and read Wilhelmine Otten's chapter on the Carolingians, it's a great example of somebody doing what I would call proper historical theology. That's not just looking at the ideas as if they've dropped from heaven but somebody saying, these ideas are being thought by real people. What are they doing? Not just what are they thinking, what are they writing, what are they doing? What are they doing with the patristic testimony? What are they doing in relation to the political world in which they operate? Um, it's a short essay, but I think reflect both upon its content, if you like, and upon the method and the kind of questions that Wilhelmine Otten is asking there. So we'll come down to some nitty-gritty characters then. First person I want to look at is Alswin. Alswin, of course, anagram of Calvin, not lost on Calvin. He did publish under the pseudonym Alswin at times. But there was an original Alswin. His dates, 735 to 804. Like all truly great theologians, of course, he was an Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> Alcuin of York. 
It's a shame he was a Yorkshireman, one has to say, but at least he was English. Um, and as one person once said, and has therefore won first prize in the lottery of life. <laughs> so, Alston of York. <clears throat> Born in York in 781. In 781, he was appointed to Charlemagne's school. Charlemagne had a kind of moving court. This particular point in time, his court was at Aachen. <coughs> what Charlemagne was doing was trying to gather around himself. But Charlemagne was trying to, in many ways, both restructure Europe politically and intellectually. And what he did was gather around himself in Aachen a collection of the brightest and best, effectively to reform teaching, to develop a curriculum for education. And so he gathered together, and uh, you, a number of you will like this, I've got here, he gathered together the cream of Irish, Anglo-Saxon and Italian intellectuals. Why he went for the Irish, the Anglo-Saxons and the Italians, I don't know. But he gathered the greatest of the Anglo-Saxon, Irish and Italian intellects to his court with a view of reforming reforming education. And in Alsuit, though we don't see later medieval philosophy and theology full-blown, we see the seeds there. Alsuin has interests in a number of subjects, the relationship of which will form the crucible for the development of medieval thinking. Primarily, he's interested in logic and theology. Logic, the science of words, how words are used, how they operate. And theology, of course, the sense of God. And so much of later medieval thought is spent discussing and reflecting <laughs> upon how words and how logic relate to God. We'll see this later on when we look at John Scotus. We'll certainly see it when we come to Thomas Aquinas. Much of medieval thought is born intellectually out of the need to relate, the desire to relate these two things, logic and theology. <clears throat> Ansel, uh, oh, sorry, Anselm, I'm leaping ahead a couple of hundred years. Alcuin also showed knowledge of that most crucial of influences on the medieval world, Aristotle. I was reading in my, my Latin class yesterday a bit of Thomas Aquinas to somebody. And of course, Aquinas simply refers to philosophers, the philosopher. Capital P. When Aquinas refers to philosophers, Aristotle is of crucial importance. There are problems with the appropriation of Aristotle in the Middle Ages. Primarily, of course, what? Translation. Aristotle wrote in Greek. And the knowledge of Greek is very, very restricted in the West. It's not to say that there's nobody with any knowledge of Greek. John Scottus Erigena clearly knows Greek. Greek was not a well-known language much of the West's appropriation of Aristotle depended upon the 5th, 6th century translations of Boethius, whose life's ambition was to translate the whole of Aristotle and Plato into Latin. But he was accused of treason and executed um, before he got anywhere near fulfilling that ambition. Boethius translated what is known as the Organon of Aristotle, the logical treatise, collection of treatises he wrote, the logical treatise, deal with the way words are used and behaved. 
Boethius did not manage to get round to translating the metaphysical treatise of Aristotle. We await the 12th century before the metaphysical treatise are really widely available in the West as the result of translations that occur in the 12th. Metaphysics, by the way, those of you who wonder where the word comes from, of course, <coughs> metaphysics simply means after physics. These were the treaties that Aristotle produced. So, Aristotle's logical treaties then. We know from looking at Alcuin's stuff that he clearly had knowledge of the Isagoge and of the Perihermeneas or De Interpretatione. <coughs> on interpretation. De Interpretatione, of course, is one of those treaties that puzzled Christian thinkers for centuries because of the way it showed how language could behave in peculiar ways, particularly when you had um, a theistic understanding of the universe. The question that Aristotle asks in Book 9 of Perihermeneus, can we give a truth value to the statement, there will be a sea battle at noon tomorrow? truth value to that statement now. If we can give a truth value to that statement now, then you have a radically deterministic universe. And of course it becomes a real problem if you have a God who knows the future, and a God who can here and now give a truth value to a statement that refers to tomorrow, does that not eliminate human freedom? You're left with the choice of either God can be mistaken, or human beings have no free will. And it was a fascinating question, of course, for Christian <coughs> theologians trying to engage with the uh, logic of Aristotle. Those of you who looked at Boethius's on the Consolation of Philosophy um, will know uh, how he... Do you know, I managed to save Boethius from oblivion the other day. I was with um, Dr. Oliphant and uh, Dr. Edgar, and they were going through the list of um, lectures to do in apologetics, and, and uh, oh, we've got one on Boethius, he said. We can miss that out. And I turned to him and I said, well, I spent a whole lecture last term telling people that you can't understand the history of theology in the way, unless you've understood Boethius. So he said, oh, that's all right then. You can give the lecture. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've, I've got to go and give a lecture over in apologetics sometime in April. Um, and then he said to Professor Edgar, oh, you're lecturing tomorrow, and um, that's the last time I'll need you till the end of March. To which I then said, gosh, I need to move to your department quickly. <laughs> if that's the kind of workload. So <laughs> Anyway. Logical treaties are known in the West, and Alcuin is typical of what will become uh, Western theology. He has an interest, a knowledge of, and an interest in the logic of Aristotle. Uh, it would appear that Alcuin gets his knowledge through Boethius. Boethius translates and produces commentaries upon Aristotle. So it reinforces, those of you in my early church class last term and came to my last lecture on Boethius, reinforces what I said about the man. He's a bridge between the early church and the Middle Ages. A lot of access to classical learning in the Middle Ages comes via the work that Boethius did. <coughs> Alcuin is also central to forging and defining the medieval curriculum. Medieval curriculum, the universities, what become the university built around two things, the trivium and the quadrivial. Trivium, from which we get the English word trivia. You see the whole of the English language is built towards doing down the Middle Ages in some way. The trivium, grammar, rhetoric, dialectic, language, means of argumentation, quadrivium, kind of higher learning if you like, arithmetic, astronomy, 
geography. And interestingly enough, music. Though one shouldn't mistake medieval conception of learning about music for a modern conception of learning about music. Music for the medievals is... Um, do you have the new Music Express over here? No, probably got something like Rolling Stone, I suppose, probably the equivalent. No. It's all to do with profound philosophy of music. If you want a really boring afternoon's read, <laughs> get hold of Henry Chadwick's book, you'll realise that at the end of the day, the notes, the notes that come out of the musical instrument, that's the kind of, that's only the very lowest level of music. The real truth about music lies several steps up the way. It's a highly platonic understanding of music where the reality is nothing to do with sound or tune or melody. This, from that perspective, is a little bit like modern classical music. But the real truth lies, come on, it's early in the morning, but you've got you to keep up with me. Uh, it's a platonic discipline, a philosophical discipline, essentially. So don't think that music is at all playing instruments practical. It's highly, highly rarefied and philosophical. You'll notice there's no theology. And this, of course, reflects another of the emphases of Halsewit. It's carried over into the Middle Ages, and I think, arguably, carried on into the Reformation and right through to nearly the present day in many circles, and that is the idea that a liberal arts education, however you may define that, is a prerequisite to the context for the study of theology is, if you like, post-study of the liberal arts. That it is important to be an educated person, if you like, before going on to doing a profound study of theology. And in Alcuin, you get the first notes of, well, not so much in Alcuin, but certainly in Scotus, the first notes of theological problems arise when people who aren't trained in the liberal arts start engaging in theology. So you're getting here what will become, if you like, will ultimately, you know, will shape places like Old Princeton. Classic foundations of theological education in the liberal arts. That's why I said earlier, maybe these guys are not making massive original contributions themselves, but they are setting in place emphases and concerns that will shape the way the later Middle Ages cuts up. And because it, they shape the way the later Middle Ages cuts up, shapes the way, if you like, even we live and operate and think today. So the trivium and the quadrivium. <coughs> he also wrote uh, a couple of theological treaties, one of which I'll mention here. Uh, De Fide, Sancti, Trinitatis, concerning the faith of the Holy Trinity, concerning faith in the Holy Trinity. Essentially, a summary of Augustine's work on the Trinity. Again, standing in the tradition of Boethius. Boethius produces his little tract on the Trinity, which is essentially a compression and a more logical statement of Augustine's understanding of the Trinity. Very soon in the West, Augustine's position becomes enshrined as the starting point for Trinitarian discussion, reflecting what the East would certainly say is the West's being more happy, being more relaxed with the idea of God as one, but with God as three. 
And those of you who did the early church with me last term will know that goes right the way back to the area of controversy, where the West are constantly being suspected of modalism and the East constantly being suspected of tritheism. You get Augustine, Augustine to Boethius, Boethius to Alcuin, and the rest, as they say, is history. <coughs> he also appears to be the first to really engage with Boethius's great work, the Cons Consolatione, on the Consolation of Philosophy, the most, re most read book in the Middle Ages after the Bible. Second only to the Bible in terms of the number of people who read it and engaged with it. So again, Alcuin typifies the start of what will become the dominant medieval pattern. He also typifies at a methodological level what will become the standard for uh, medieval scholarship, and that is his use of florilegia. What a florilegia. Well, just think for a moment. It's the Middle Ages. Book production is highly complicated, very time-consuming, very expensive. If you want a complete set of Augustine for your library, it's going to take you years to get it. You have to pay somebody to copy it out. And of course, there are all kinds of problems below the surface. How do you know the copyist has copied them accurately? What quickly emerges in the Middle Ages are collections of florilegia. These are books of patristic extracts. They are in part a function of the complexity and expense of book production and distribution. You have an analogous situation today. How many of you are going to read, I don't know, Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics from beginning to end? Very few of you, I hope, I have to say. <laughs> very few of you. A lot of energy expended for very little gain, I suspect. More likely, if you want to know what Barth's thinking, you're going to get a hold of a little bit of extra. So there are analogies to today. So the expense, the complexity of book production means that Florilegia, these collections of sentences um, from the fathers, are extremely useful. They also, of course, shape the way people think because they become the basic source book for understanding the tradition. You see this in, in spades with Peter Lombard's Four Books of Sentences, the textbook of the later Middle Ages. If you're going to own one book, own Peter Lombard's Books of Sentences, it's all there, gathered under different topical headings, the church, the sacraments, salvation, little sentences from the bar gathered and arranged. You see that starting in Alcuin. He's using Florilegia. It, of course, helps to reinforce the distinction between East and West. Because in the East, you'll get Florilegia, which are predominantly, if not exclusively, drawn from the Greek fathers, the language that people can operate with. In the West, you will have Florilegia drawn almost exclusively from the language group that the West can deal with, Latin. So in the West, the big names are going to be Augustine, Tertullian, characters like that. In the East, the big names, Athanasia, Gregory of Nyssa. So again, I've said about the political breakdown between East and West. There are elements of theological breakdown between East and West. We now have, if you like, pedagogic breakdown. And all of these things, of course, will feed me of ourselves a little bit. We'll just be aware of it, this particular further result stroke problem of the use of florilegia, which we'll talk about in more detail in a later lecture, of course, is the problem of misunderstanding the fathers. 
There's a sense in which it's meaningless to say that Western theology in the Middle Ages is Augustinian. Because all Western theologians understood themselves as being Augustinian. They all drew on these books of sentences, most of the sentences of which were drawn from the writings of Augustine. You get anti-Pelagians, you get semi-Pelagians, and you get Pelagians, all citing Augustine as an authority. Because what you have in Florilegia are sentences taken out of context. Texts only have meaning in contexts. Take your text out of its context, and the meaning becomes very, very plastic, very, very elastic indeed. And we have examples in the later Middle Ages of Augustine being cited, the same passage being cited to prove both a Pelagian and an anti-Pelagian position. So we see the roots here of what will be, if you like, a problem of interpreting the Fathers later on. And that, of course, will provide some of the background to the Reformation. As I've said before, the Reformation, we can understand it in a variety of different ways. One of the ways I think we need to understand it is, it's the question, who owns the Church Fathers? Correctly. I noticed in the reading on Augustine that his, his stance on some issues changed over time. And yeah. He was very open with that from really from, from the start. Yeah. So did the of Augustine's writing, if they read some of this, would they still consider themselves Augustinian or they followed the final conclusions that they came to? I think in some ways that the, one would have to say the problem is not the problem you've alluded to. The problem is, of course, that they weren't reading Augustine as we read him. That we go to the library and there's a, you know, whether you're reading in English or in Latin, there's a shelf of books, complete texts of Augustine, and we know when they were written. We often know where they were written, we often know who they were written to, what issues they were addressing. But, of course, these guys didn't have that. They have their book of sentences. They, have, they look up, you know, uh, on the Eucharist. They open it, and there's, they see a sentence from Augustine at the top. Maybe they have a reference to the book it comes from can't tell. But they just have a sentence from Augustine. It's all they have. So in a way, you put your, your finger precisely on the problem, if you like. These guys don't read Augustine as we do. They just see him, they read him flat, and as a collection of isolated thoughts, not as complete texts operating in context as, as we should. Yeah? No, I, he's, he's simply typical of a use that's going on. Floral Ager, I think, I've been taped here, so I, I have to be I have to qualify everything that I'm not sure about in case somebody hears it and thinks the man's an idiot. Um, but I think Florilegia are really uh, originating the East. I think that they're originally an Eastern phenomenon. I would have to go and check that. But Alcuin certainly isn't the first. What he is, is if you like, he's, he's the best come typical of a growing tradition. And he's useful for making, making this point. So. In fact, in fact, having said, I think they grow in the East, I have in my own notes that I only wrote this week, so I should have remembered it. Um, it becomes, I said, the common practice after the Council of Chalcedon, 451, where the statement of faith, according to my notes, in Chalcedon, is prefaced with the statement, following the Holy Fathers flagging up, if you like, probably for the first time, the importance of patristic testimony and giving, if you like, a boost to the idea of productions of authoritative sayings of the fathers. You have, a, and again, you know, sometimes the analogies are, uh, are very obvious for the current day. I think Baron of Truth used to produce a kind of golden treasury of Puritan sayings. What is it but a floral of church fathers? 
So these things have proved perennially useful <coughs> throughout the years. <coughs> What's else doing then? Second thing I want to look at very briefly is iconoclasm. Partly because I've got great sympathy with iconoclasm. It's always nice to lecture on something you have sympathy with. We don't have enough to know that, uh, you know, my usual take on iconoclasm is, to a large extent, it was fun. Some of you heard me say this in my Reformation classes. It was fun. If you want to get young men on your side, tell them to go and smash something up. Tell them they're doing it for the Lord. That's the way to have a kind of revival, if you like. It's what I call the fun theory of history. Iconoclasm in the Carolingian divines, however, I want to deal with at a slightly more rarefied level. There are a number of political issues involved. <clears throat> East and West will <clears throat> disagree over icons. In the East, the practice of using icons in devotion is <clears throat> uh, far more popular, far more established than it is in the West. The context for the dispute uh, under Charlemagne is the Second Council of Nicaea. It takes place in 787, which adopts the so-called iconophile, as opposed to iconoclast, the iconophile position that legitimates the use of icons in worship and devotion. Don't think the Pope was present. I'm going to my notes, but I don't think the Pope was present at this uh, um, council, so it had dubious claims to being completely Catholic, as East and West were not fully represented there. <clears throat> News of the council's findings get to Charlemagne. Charlemagne is really an iconoclast, and he's outraged by the iconophile position of the church over in the East, and also by the claims that the council makes to be universal, i.e. iconophile position is normative for Charlemagne in the same way as it is normative for the empire in the east. Charlemagne doesn't like that. And he commissions someone, and scholars are divided over who that somebody is, he commissions somebody to write against icons. Scholars are divided between two characters, Theodore, the Visigoth, or our old friend Alcuin. One or other of these guys produced the Opus Caroli, the work of Charles, the work of Charlemagne. Charlemagne, of course, is just Charles the Great, Carolus Magnus, Charles the Great, the work of Charles. <clears throat> a book attempting to refute the iconophile position. There are all kinds of issues, of course, involved in any debate over images or icons. Not only what, from a reform perspective, what we'll have to say are regular <coughs> principal issues about liberty of conscience, and about what constitutes right and proper worship of God, but also issues about Christology, Trinitarianism. And I think at a, at a social and a cultural level, questions about the role of the visual, the perception of whether pictures are a good thing or are a potentially misleading and bad thing. And those of you in my early church class, I don't think about Reformation class, last term have heard me talk about um, modern culture and the culture we live in now is being increasingly visual are often seen to more trustworthy or we trust we say pictures are often trusted more than words are so the whole variety of theological cultural and political issues underlying 
um, the rejection or the acceptance of images and icons as a way of worshipping. <clears throat> what is interesting is the method used in the Opus Corolla. And that is, again, it is built on patristic references. The iconophiles had used the patristic authors to justify their position. Now we have Theodolf or Alcuin using the same patristic authors to reject that position. So you have here an implicit acceptance of the authority of the church fathers creating with issues of how the church fathers are to be interpreted, how they are to be deployed in debate. And again, the parallels, I guess, with modern day are painfully obvious. How often are church debates conducted on the basis of what Calvin did or did not, etc., etc.? I just read a rather um, interesting and a strange way. I read a, a rather interesting dissertation that a student here has done on um, the clause in the Westminster Confession that bans a man from marrying his dead wife's sister. It's one of these things that Claire Davis kind of discovered and throws up in lectures and something goes like that. It was an issue in, on the frontier, I believe, in the 19th century in America where you'd got the frontier and a guy would be out there with his wife and they'd have children and then wife would, you know, continue to have children, would finally weaken and get ill and her first wife would die and the obvious move was and forbade that to bounds of consanguinity. What is interesting, however, from the sort of comparing it with this, is some of the arguments that were used in the end of the day. A lot of the churches said, look, we don't know what Scripture teaches on this subject. Scripture's unclear, but the confession is absolutely clear. And therefore, you're out of And it's this kind of interesting way in which tradition takes on a life of its own and ceases to be subordinated to Scripture. And it makes for a slightly odd maybe slightly distasteful story in a lecture as well. <coughs> so, we see here the first, in this controversy, I think we see one of the first great who owns the father's debates that will rumble on between East and West for 700 years and will then, of course, ultimately split the West as well at the time of the Reformation. Who owns Augustine? That is the big question, or one of the big questions of the Reformation. Calvin says, Augustinus totus noster. Augustine is completely ours. But of course, so do his opponents. Who's right and who's wrong? I think we can look back now and say, well, there are elements of Augustine that clearly point towards later medieval Catholic, Renaissance Catholic thinking. There are elements in Augustine that clearly point towards Reformational thinking. In some ways, what is of interest is not so much whether they were right or wrong, but that they were having the debate and the struggle in the first place. Who owns the fathers? And the iconoclast, the iconophile controversy, is one of the first great examples of the church struggling with its own past and who owns that past. <clears throat> On another level, of course, there are theological issues. The major concern of the Opus Caroli, it seems, is that focusing on images and icons detracts, takes worship away from worship of the great God in Trinity. I think you see there a suspicion of pictures. But what pictures don't do in the West is, if you like, lift your minds to heavenly realities, they take your minds captive to earthly realities. The medieval Western church, of course, will allow for image worship big time in some cases. 
And it makes careful distinctions of the kind of worship that is offered to images, the worship that is offered. So there are theological underpinnings to this, but what I wanted to bring out today was the wrestling over patristic testimony. But don't forget that images also have Christological and Trinitarian implications. <clears throat> and of course, the final point one would say, reinforced again, the issue again, adumbrates, foreshadows the split that will erupt between East and West a couple of centuries later. 1054, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. The East and the West have been taking pot shots at each other for several centuries prior to that time. I want to push on a little bit, another five minutes, and then we'll take a ten minute break. <coughs> yeah. You're right, decorating pots. Highly, yes, but they weren't, I don't think, advocating that you worship. I think the, the distinction is not so much um, the black and white one about religious art or no religious art. I think it's about the legitimacy of what you do with images. That's how I think it carves up. Because clearly this, and earlier than this as well, this is a, a period of great, within the monasteries, of great illuminated manuscripts, of a great concern for aesthetics. And I would certainly, I think, want to make the case for medieval theology from its beginning to its end, being more concerned with aesthetics and visual things than Reformation theology typically is. I think the point at this, I think there are two points. One, Charlemagne doesn't like the idea that a council's been conducted somewhere in the empire claiming to be Catholic and telling him what to do. That's clearly very important. And I think the second issue is it's not so much a debate about, um, it's not the kind of debate you have today about whether you can have a Sunday school book with a picture of Jesus in it. The question is, should you worship a picture of Jesus? Um, there are a whole variety of them. Um, they are the books of the illiterate, for example. Um, Christ himself took flesh and therefore um, can be visually represented, if you like. You're not trying to visually represent something that cannot be visually represented. Um, when it comes to icons of saints, of course, one links it to the growing cult of saints. And one of the objections that's made in the West at this point is, you know, we don't object to the cult of the saints. But the problem is that icons in themselves have no connection to the saint they're said to represent. It's one thing, if you like, to, I don't know, to, to get some benefit from looking at one of Athanasius' teeth or something on display somewhere or at the hand of St. Anthony or something like this because that is part of the original saint. It's quite another thing to draw a picture of a, you know, Eastern-looking guy with a beard and say, this is Athanasius, go and worship him. So, you know, another part of the controversy is, I think, the cult of the saints idea and the need for the things you worship to have some sort of historical connection to the person that's being worshipped. Yeah? I mean, there are texts, biblical texts. Are people wrestling with what other theologians have I think that there is a strong sense in which, for, and, and we'll, see, we'll see differences emerging in the next section I want to talk about, but there is a strong sense in which um, tradition is authoritative. It's not that it's seen as a separate, and this, this is one of the subtleties that Protestants often don't grasp. I think it's not that 
these guys see tradition as a separate stream of revelation from the scriptures is that they see tradition as the authoritative teaching of the scriptures mediated through history if you like so I don't think well uh, it's always you ask me a question that, that, that maybe the next part of the lecture will answer I think for some there is a clear perception that the fathers don't all agree and that therefore there are issues about the relationship between the fathers and scripture that have to be addressed but there is also a strong tendency I think to respect tradition and to look for that consensus throughout history trajectories set up in the early church the rule of faith, apostolic succession all of these things point towards a fairly close identification of the traditional teaching of the church and what the Bible actually says so I wouldn't want to say that no, I mean the, Med the Middle Ages goes to great lengths to develop elaborate ways of exegeting the Bible, particularly those bits that seem to contradict or see the of God. This kind of, so the text of the Bible is very important. Um, but it's always, I think, mediated to an extent through the search for patristic consensus. Because at a crude level, they have this idea that if I'm the very first person who's ever seen this, I'm probably wrong. I'm probably wrong. It's a very, very different attitude to tradition and history than we have, you know, kind of post-enlightenment. Um, if it's been thought of before, it's probably wrong or inferior. We can do better now. Well, it's a very good question. Last question, then we'll take a break. <clears throat> Quoting from Greek fathers, and of course they have to quote from Greek fathers here, because the terms of debate have been set by the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea is quoting Greek fathers. So if you like, the choice of authorities has already been made. The Carolingians come in and they're having to meet their opponents on ground that their opponents have already set out. The issue, if you like, is not the choice of authorities. The issue becomes, how do you read those authorities? Are they reading these Eastern Fathers correctly? So, you know, it's, it, 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 it's not a case of, hey, you've got your fathers and we've got ours and let's let them slug it out. It's a question of, no, you're misreading your own tradition. And I'm going to demonstrate to you that you're misreading your own. Retramnus and Radbertus. <clears throat> successive heads um, well certainly the study of astronomy where, where astronomy begins ends and astrology begins is very difficult to see um, the, my instincts are yes it's quite common in this period partly because of the influence of Platonism Platonism raises a lot of mystical questions about the heavenly spheres and this kind of thing um, one of the problems you say that they speculated on magic and things like that is the category of magic, what is magic, has changed over time. So you get reformers uh, indulging in what we would regard as astrology now. But at the time, it was part of the scientific endeavour and a perfectly legitimate thing to do. Um, some of the things that they would have done uh, quite normally, we would now regard as superstitious, magical. So there's, there's an immediate problem in the question you ask about, you know, were they interested in magic? One would have to say, yes, they were, but they didn't think of it as magic, quite probably. They thought of it as a legitimate part of study of the physical, spiritual universe. I'll take just one more question, and I must move on. Yeah. Yeah. You have to do that, otherwise you're engaging in idolatry. Yeah. I don't believe it, but you have to make that distinction. Yeah. <laughs> Dramnus and Radbertus, successive heads of the monastic school at Corby. 
both of whom wrote on the Eucharist. Radbertus is also sometimes called Pascasius. Pascasius Radbertus. Wrote a book on the Lord's body and blood. 831 to 833. This is Pascasius we're talking about. <clears throat> he was head of the monastic school at the time. 843. Retramnus. This is Pascasius. Retramnus writes a book uh, of the same title. Same topic. It is actually, I think, I didn't list it on your bibliographies, but I have memories. I wasn't able to check this. I have memories that Retramnus's work is translated in the Library of Christian Classics volume dealing with early medieval theology. Pretty sure it's there. Not sure if Pascasius's work is there or not. This is the end of side one. Please flip the tape at this point. A couple of interesting things. Retramnus writes at the request of Charles the Bald, <coughs> Frankish king at the time. Two divergent views of the Eucharist. That's what, interest, what is interesting about these guys. Um, the mass will become increasingly central to medieval piety throughout the Middle Ages. It becomes uh, the central sacrament, the central act of Christian worship. Those of you who heard me talk about the Reformation will know I make a point that at the Reformation, church architecture changes. The pulpit becomes more central. The altar is often abolished entirely and replaced with a table. <clears throat> Going to a medieval cathedral and your eyes are drawn straight up to the altar because that's where the most important thing that happens in church takes place, the Mass. So the Middle Ages, particularly the early Middle Ages, are a time when the Mass is becoming of increasing importance, and yet the church has not yet settled upon... Um, dogmatic understanding of what's going on in the Mass. <coughs> so one of the interesting things that comes out through uh, reading Pascasius and reading Tramnus is that you have two different views of what the Mass is expressed there. Pascasius <coughs> argues for a mystical, incarnational understanding of the Mass. But what is important in the Mass is what actually happens to the elements that the elements become the body and blood of Christ in a realistic sense, and the eating and participating in the Mass is in a way what constitutes the Church. The Church is almost a, is a mystical extension of Christ's body. And the union of the Church with Christ's body is forged through participating in the sacraments, particularly in the Mass. So in Pascasius you have an understanding of the Mass which focuses upon the actions of the priest in, to put it crudely, making God in the bread and wine. That is a very crude way of expressing it, but you, you know what I mean. <clears throat> in other words, Pascasius' view points forward, it seems to me, to what will become the dominant mainstream medieval Catholic position on the Mass, which really focuses not so much on the words of institution as grasped by the congregation, but upon the words of institution as rorting, as creating, as being the context within which the miracle of transubstantiation will happen. So Pascasius takes one view. Retramnus <coughs> argues for another view. The Eucharist is a sign of a signified reality. For a tramness, it is not so much the action of the priest that's important, 
as the Word's institution. The words are what sets the bread and wine apart. The bread and wine become literally significant because the words make them signify something. If you like, what you have in Retramnus, and I don't like reading history backwards, but what you have in Retramnus is something much closer to Protestant understandings that you'll get in the Reformation. In fact, of course, there is no need to read history backwards at this point. What you actually have is the continuation of two separate strands of the patristic tradition. Pascasius's major authority is Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, preeminent churchman of his day, the man under whom, of course, Augustine was converted. For Atramnus, what you have essentially is an Augustinian understanding of the sacrament and of the way signs and words relate to spiritual... So here, you're starting to get, if you like, implicitly at least, a critical appropriation of the Father. There's a sense in which Pascasius is drawing on different Westerns. At a deeper level, I think, you have Pascasius, or Pascasius, you have a man who is part and parcel of that element of medieval theology, theological training, which focuses upon meditation and contemplation. We had reference earlier on to the beautiful manuscripts that are being part of the monastic culture of reflection, mystical, aesthetic, reflective understanding of the Eucharist is shaped, I think, by that reflective culture. What you have in Retramnus, however, is an interesting words and a focus upon the words. In Retramnus, you have something that looks forward to the later scholastic strains of medieval thinking and beyond that to the Reformation. For Retramnus, words are of singular importance here. Pascasius is almost a sort of, uh, well, no, not, I was going to say he's a proto-hippie, a kind of, never mind the words, just share the experience, but there's that kind of element to him, pointing maybe more towards mystical dimensions in the later Middle Ages. Retramnus, more Augustinian. And you have here, in, in miniature, what will explode at the Reformation. That is a perception, maybe an implicit unconscious perception, that the fathers don't speak with one voice. And that different theological traditions, if you like, can emerge from the patristic testimony or patristic testimonies. <clears throat> I want to close today, however, by focusing on the man who is by far the most important figure of this period. And that is John Scottus Erigena. If you're English and you've won first prize in the lottery of life, maybe if you just missed that. Well, I say to my wife, she's Scottish, I said, you know, the one, you know, she's the luckiest person in the world. She may not have been born English, and that was pretty unlucky, but she managed to marry one. <laughs> so, you know, if you can't be born English, marrying one is not the next best thing. But third down the line, probably being Irish, maybe. And John Scottus Erigena, despite the name, is an Irishman. Because Scottus means Irish. That's a particular point. Later it comes to mean, I think, either Scottish or Irish. It essentially means Celtic, if you like. But Scotus and then the, the other uh, extension, Erigena, which also means Irish. We're dealing here with an Irishman, by far the most brilliant theologian, I think, of this particular period in time. He taught at the court of Charles the Bald, the man who uh, spotted the talents of Retramnus and hired him. <clears throat> 
and he was involved in a great controversy and he was also involved in putting into Latin and transmitting to the Latin West the very, very influential works of a Greek father. But we'll talk about the controversy first. A chap called Gottschalk, sometimes spelt Godskalk, developed a doctrine of double predestination as a function of his notion of divine immutability. I think I'm right in saying, don't quote me on this, but again, I'll qualify it for the tape. I think that Gottschalk is the first man to argue for limited atonement. I'm not sure about that. But Gottschalk <coughs> develops a doctrine of double predestination based on his understanding of divine immutability. <coughs> Combined, interestingly enough, as we would expect in this era of time, <coughs> excuse me, I've been losing my voice for about a week and I haven't quite managed to succeed in losing it, but I'm getting pretty close. Combined, as we would expect in this period of time, with the idea that this teaching was a legitimate development of the teaching of Augustine, the preeminent church father who wrote on grace, predestination. So you have immediately, if you like, a twofold challenge here. On the one hand, there's the is it true challenge. Does an understanding of God as immutable require adoption of double predestination? But secondly, you have the secondary but still very important challenge that hey I represent true stream of Augustinianism so it's a twofold challenge twofold challenge to the church and Scoter John Scotus Eregina is hired by Archbishop Hinkmar you've got great names these guys Hinkmar of Reims who gets far more than he's bargaining for from Scotus he's hired by Hinkmar of Reims to reply to Gottschalk and to put him right and he writes his treatise on divine predestination <clears throat> which is 851 it's translated I've listed a translation it's translated it's in the library read it this week boy it's pretty tormented stuff at points I can tell you but I'll give you the highlights now I'll give you a little florilegia if you like of um, <clears throat> Gottschalk on predestination the other interesting point, and I don't think historians uh, are yet decided on how significant this is, <clears throat> the other interesting point is that Gottschalk was a vigorous evangelist. This is very interesting. One of the first really major predestinarian controversies that explodes in the church. The radical predestinarian is a very vigorous evangelist. And there is some evidence to suggest that it was his outgoing idea of going out into the highways and byways and compelling them to come into the church that disturbed the church authorities at a political and ecclesiastical level. It's very, very interesting that here we're not dealing with somebody saying predestination is terrible because it kills evangelism. If anything, we question that may even go the other way. This guy is terrible because he's interested in evangelism. <coughs> anyway, Scotus is hired takes up the challenge and produces this relatively brief treatise on divine predestination. As Augustine has been cited, of course, and has been used as an authority, Scotus has to cite him as well. It's a little like the iconophile controversy. To an extent, some of the terms of debate have been set by the first shot that was fired, and that was fired by Gottschalk. Scotus takes his cue from Augustine, but moves beyond mere citing of authorities. And I've got a quotation here I'll give you. If indeed, as St. Augustine says... It is believed and taught as the fundamental principle of man's salvation that philosophy, that is the study of wisdom, is not one thing and religion another, 
i.e. if philosophical truth and theological truth are one and the same, there are no, there aren't two different truths floating around out there, what else is the exercise of philosophy but the exposition of the rules of true religion, by which the supreme and principal cause of all things, God, is worshipped with humility and rationally searched for. It follows then that true philosophy is true religion, and conversely, that true religion is true philosophy. Putting it across in very simple form there, a methodological principle that he's going to be proceeding both by using authorities, but also by using philosophical, logical argumentation. See, there aren't two truths floating out there. Something isn't true philosophically and false theologically. But in the Middle Ages, we'll come to that later in the course. There is only one truth. And if you're using your philosophy correctly, you'll come to the same conclusions as your theology guides you to. <clears throat> he now moves on to stress both the inadequacy. So first of all, we've got the relationship, if you like, between philosophy and theology. Secondly, <clears throat> he points towards the inadequacy of human language. And third, he uses the notion... Deal with the third one first. First of all, Scotter says, the problem with double predestination is it implies a twofold within God towards his creation. But that cannot be. God is utterly simple. Across again and again in the Middle Ages, God is utterly simple. We are complex. Complex things are ontologically inferior to simple things. God is utterly simple. He cannot will double predestination because that would involve a twofold will towards his creation. So we're down the line to all kinds of problems like God willing evil. It's Manichaeism. Splitting God like that is Manichaeism. So it cannot be. God is simple. So first of all, we've got to get rid of this idea of double predestination because it involves a split in God's will, a split in God, a complexity in an otherwise simple God. Further, we've got to remember that we have here a problem with language. Having said that philosophy is useful, we've got to remember that human language is limited. He goes back, really, and builds here upon Augustinian and Boethian notions of time and eternity. One of the problems is, of course, that we live in time. The past is behind us, the present is now, the future is in front of us, and we move in an apparent linear way from the present, from the past to the present to the future in our lives. You can lay it out on a line, chop it up into little bits, in which the past now is present, some bits of future. We're constantly moving through time. And our language, therefore, and our logic reflects that. Our language and our logic reflect our experience of time as we travel through it. But God, of course, is God is outside of time. And therefore, certain logical problems that are thrown up by our language that are problems for us, because if you like, we are trapped within the cage of our own language, certain of these problems that are problems for us are not problems to God. Go back to what I mentioned earlier. Will there be a sea battle at noon tomorrow? Boethius says, giving truth value to a statement such as there will be a sea battle at noon tomorrow, it's a problem for us in terms of determinism because we're moving through time. But God stands outside of time. And therefore the same logical problems, the logical problems that apply to us, do not apply to God. So he says this, by what right can it be called predestination? That is, Preparation. In him who had no interval of time beforehand in which to arrange what he would do, whose preparation did not come before the operation. 
The conclusion then is that foreknowledge and predestination are metaphorically applied to God on the basis of a similitude to temporal things. In other words, when we talk about before, now and after with reference to God, we're talking metaphorically. We are complex. We cannot understand a purely simple being as a purely simple being. We have to make him complex in order to understand him. And when we make him complex in order to understand him, our language becomes very slippery, becomes metaphorical. One might want to say more precisely that we start to make logical distinctions in God which have no ontological counterpart. There is no before for God. There is no after for God. There is only, as Boethius would say, an eternal present. Only eternity. All of time, simultaneously present for God. And do you remember the, the, the Boethius and those who come after him use various analogies, like the man on the tower who can look out and see all the world around him. Um, the other one is the a point at the centre of a wheel where you have time around the outside and the point is related equally to each of the uh, points on the outer rim of the wheel. God is at the centre of time and time is related to all points simultaneously. That kind of idea. Whether it makes any sense or not, philosophers have debated about it for hundreds of years. It's one of the great things about being historians. I don't have to tell you what these people think. I don't have to tell you whether it makes sense or not. This is the position they hold. And for the record, I think it's, well, with my usual sort of orthodoxy is the sum total of all the inconsistencies you're prepared to live with rather than all the inconsistencies you're not prepared to live with. I am prepared to live basically with a Boethian view of time with one or two little Thomist correctives thrown in there for good measure. We'll come to those later in the course. So he's questioning, for a start, the whole idea of pre-language about God. <clears throat> he also adopts from Augustine and Boethius the notion of evil as non-being. I think we would have to say here that the later language of privation of being is better. Um, I used to use this metaphor. I used to teach a class with a friend who was an Islamicist and a Jewish friend on um, Islamic, Jewish and Christian philosophy in the Middle Ages. And I always used to use this metaphor in my I used to say, you know, if I, have, if I don't have wings, that's not, a, that's not a privation of being. It's not an evil for truth. Not to, if I go into the park and rip a wing off a seagull, rip a wing off a seagull, that is a privation of being. That is an evil state of non-being. The non-being of my wings is not evil. The ripping off of a wing of a bird is an evil because something that should be there isn't there. So the first thing to do is that when you talk about evil as non-being, it's not simply non-existence. It's non-existence where existence should be. It's a privation of the good of the being that should be there. It's a brilliant way of addressing the evil problem, of course, because it, it solves the problem of positive connection between God and evil on one level. There is no positive connection between God and evil because evil is the denial of being. And God is the source of being. It's a bit like the old hole in, you know, the hole in the sock argument. The hole is totally dependent upon the existence of the sock, yet really stands in no positive connection with the sock whatsoever. The hole in the sock is a privation of being, a sock of the sock's being. But it's not the sock's fault it has a hole in it. And the hole itself has, in a way, no independent existence of the good of the sock. And yet the hole is still itself 
an evil, a privation of being. It's one that you find in sort of the philosophical example books. Um, it's a hole in the sock thing. So this allows scholars to go on and say, well, evil then is the result of man's will, human will, not the result of God's will. There are two kinds of evil, he says, sin and punishment. That's a distinction that will pass into the Middle Ages. There are evils, he said, there are not evils. Aquinas is with him on that. There are evils that just involve one creature fulfilling its potential. That may involve the destruction of another creature. But there's a sense in which you know, a fox eating a chicken is not evil in the fox achieving the food. We're not talking about that. Sin and punishment. These are either evil acts, punishment, hell. Both of these things derive from human will, as far as Scotus is concerned. God can only will the good. He can only give being. So what do you have then in these evils? You have, Scotus says, the vain striving of men and women to be as far away from God as possible. The vain striving of men and women for non-existence. This, of course, is where it all starts to get highly dodgy for Scotus. And the church starts to get more than it's bargained for. What does this say about hell? Hell, of course, ceases to be a literal place. Hell and heaven are one and the same place. God only wills heaven. He only wills the good. But what happens is in heaven is that you have the saints who are enjoying God's being in all of its beauty and all of its glory for all eternity. And the damned who strive for non-existence in this place of supreme being and existence. They're in the same place, but they strive for exactly the opposite of what the saints do. And their punishment, of course, and their suffering is caused by the fact that God will never quite allow them to cease to exist. They will be always willing non-existence and never achieving it. I would suggest that is a completely inadequate understanding of hell. I would certainly want to suggest that. But you see how it flows from Scotus's idea that God is utterly simple. God only wills the good, the true. He only gives being. How do you explain evil then? Evil is non-being. How do you explain hell then? Hell is the same place as heaven. The difference between heaven and hell is the use you put it to. I've got a quotation here. The fire, he says, is not therefore a punishment, nor prepared or predestined for that purpose. But what had been predestined to be in the universe of all good things became the abode of the wicked. In it beyond doubt there will dwell the blessed no less than the damned. Blessed and the damned are in the same place. But just as one and the same light, as we have said, is suited to healthy eyes, but hampers those in pain, one and the same food or drink is bitter in the throat of the feeble, pleasant in the throat of those who enjoy good health. So indeed, the unimpaired joy of their salvation pleases the former, and the punitive sadness of their corruption displeases the latter. After all, one and the same water sustains both the swimmer and suffocates the drowning man. This, of course, is where Scotus goes beyond the pale. The church don't like this. But what we can say is that it's a very, very consistent working out, if you like, of Scotus's principles of God's. His absolute refusal to connect God in any positive way with damnation or evil. Damnation and evil derive from human beings striving against their own being, depriving themselves of being where being should be. 
that's where evil comes from. What is going on here at a, a sort of a, a, a sub-theological level? A couple of things. Again, struggle over the fathers. Father's testimony is very important. Second, it's a clear development of the fathers. Augustine is the starting point, but Scotus goes well beyond Augustine in his theological argumentation and development. He picks up on certain ideas, evil as non-being, etc. The need to maintain God's sovereignty and carries these forward in ways that Augustine would never have dreamed of doing. And thirdly, this is interesting, the last chapter, what does Scotus say? He said, well, when you look at Gottschalk, this is what happens when people study theology without having a liberal arts degree. It's kind of rather snobby sort of last chapter. But you get reinforced the medieval plea that theology should be conducted within a broader context of the liberal arts. I'm being pushed for time. So I have to move on fairly quickly. If you have questions about it, do feel free to email me during the week. Uh, I want to push on to finish. <clears throat> second thing, second point where John Scott is important is in the translation of Pseudo Dionysius. John Scotus knows Greek, therefore he has access to Greek fathers, and he translates into Latin one of the most significant Greek fathers of all, a chap called Dionysius the Areopagite, now known to us as Pseudo Dionysius. Why is Dionysius the Areopagite important? Because nobody knew he was pseudo until fairly recently. Who is Dionysius the Areopagite? A word of Paul's. And if you think that Dionysius the Areopagite is the convert of Paul, then while you may not include Dionysius the Areopagite's writings in your Bible, you will regard them as being the authoritative. The Church of both East and West regarded Pseudo-Dionysius as the disciple of Paul and as extremely important for theology. He was probably a Syrian monk of the 5th century. We don't know who he was. Mysterious guy. Influenced strongly, pseudo-Dionysius, by Neoplatonism and the problem of relating the ideal, the immaterial, the unchanging area of being and truth to the phenomenal, material, changeable realm in which we all have to live. And the Neoplatonists did this by a series of emanations come down from the one at the top to matter at the lowest possible level. <coughs> A number of issues come up in Pseudo-Dionysius that are picked up by Scotus, translated by him, and become very important in theology. One, there is the theme of uh, and return, that all things go out from the one and ultimately return to him. It fits very nicely with Christian view of history, if you like. God creates. God is the creative force that creates, and ultimately all of creation will return to him in the eschaton. So there's much in a Neoplatonic understanding of the way the world is to commend itself to Christian thinking. But secondly, uh, the absolute ontological gap between God in himself and the world we live in. God the one is transcendent. While he sustains everything, he is transcendent. And the huge ontological gap that exists between us and him creates a huge logical problem for language. How do we talk about God? Our language is so wrapped in the things of this world. How do we talk about God in a meaningful way? <clears throat> well, Pseudo-Dionysius is translated and 
to his work embodied in the Pelifisio of begun around about 864 became one of the most condemned books of the Middle Ages condemned in 1050 <coughs> 1059 uh, 1210 1225 uh, first printed in 1681 and put on the index of prohibited books 1684 Read Anthony Kenny is very interesting. Started life as a Catholic priest, uh, educated at the Gregorian University in Rome. It has a very interesting story about wanting to read David Hume for some philosophical project he was doing in his studies and had to get a letter from the council that operated the index in order to be able to get hold of a copy of David Hume to read. Very, very interesting. So the index continued down to almost the present day. <clears throat> The book's most significant contribution to theology, and it's a contribution that's picked up again and again, and I think bears some resemblance to some of what is done in Reformed theology, is its appropriation of negative or apophatic theology. Apophatic theology. This is the idea that the most accurate statements about God are statements that deny qualities of him. You got that? The most accurate statements about God that you can make are statements that deny things of him. And you might think, well, that's nonsense. But of course, you yourselves will engage in that, probably without even knowing it. God is infinite. We'll agree, I hope, God is infinite. What does God is infinite mean? It means that God is not finite. Fundamental. One of the most fundamental statements you can make about God, God is, not in, God is infinite, is negative theology. God is incorporeal does not possess a body so negative statements are not as far from our own theology as we might like to think they are and I must say the more I read Calvin the more of a negative theologian I think he probably was so God is not a body that is a good theological statement God is not a body derives from the problem of how do you relate language that's so couched in material finitude to the one infinite God who dwells uh, in complacent self-sufficiency. Well, you deny things of him. God is not a body. But of course, one can push it forward more radically than that. If God is not a body, then God is not not a body either. The double negative. If we deny corporeality to God, then we should also deny incorporeality to God. The point that Scott has is really that God in himself is transcendent and unknowable. This idea is picked up, not in quite such a radical form by Aquinas, but if you go somebody like, go to the Jewish philosopher Maimonides. Maimonides does the same. God is not finite, but God is not not finite. God is not a body, but God is not not a body. God does not suffer, but God does not not suffer. It's making the point, if you like, that God is so utterly transcendent. We should not enclose him as he is in himself within any of the mediocre, finite, inappropriate concepts which we have of God. Underlying this is the Augustinian notion that only a superior thing can comprehend an inferior thing. If you could comprehend God, if you could 
cage him within your language, then you'd be making a point about your superiority over God. <coughs> to be able to name something and close the whole of its being under that name, not just a linguistic point, but to make a point about where you stand in superior relation to this other thing. To overcome the radical negativeness of all this, however, Scottus does two things that I think are moderately helpful. One, he develops what Deirdre Carabine in her book calls hyperphatic theology. Hyper meaning super. He adds super to things. God is not an essence. God is a super essence. He is an essence that transcends and is far superior to any other essence you might think of. Of course, it's only a sort of linguistic solution to the problem. One could say that all he's really saying there is that God is not an essence and God is not not an essence. But the problem is still there, if you like. But it gives at least the appearance of being able to say something more about God than simply he's not a body and he's not not a body. The other thing, the other, and this is an important distinction he makes, is he makes the distinction between God in himself and God in his activity. This will come up again and again in the Middle Ages. But there is a difference between God as he is in himself and God as he is in relation to his creation. And we can develop a way of talking about God in relation to his activities towards creation. We can talk relationally about God as he relates to his finite creation. And this, of course, has precedence in the Cappadocian Fathers, particularly somebody like Gregory of Nyssa, where God in himself is unknowable, but God in his actions towards us is knowable. And of course, you can see if it goes right on down to Calvary. Knowledge of God stands as knowledge in relation to Calvary. I don't think God is using himself. So it points forward, it points back to the patristic era, it points forward to later ideas as well. And it also starts, makes an important contribution to what is the perennial medieval reflection upon how it is that we speak about God. None of the medievals denied the fact that we talk about God. When Aquinas develops his analogy of being, it isn't in order to say, gosh, how can I talk about God? Well, I need to develop this analogy of being and then I can go off and do it. It isn't that at all. What Aquinas is doing is he's been talking about God all along and now he wants to work out how he's been able to do that all along. So Scotter stands within the long uh, reflection. You all know that we talk about God. How are we able to do that? It's reflection on that question of raising other questions which will push the church toward. So then, in summary, today's class. Today's class. Things to, to note. The method of patristic citation. The florilegia. Slow realisation that not all the patristics speak with one voice. The need for critical reflection on them. Secondly, the emergence of the Eucharist as an ecclesiological problem. The work of people like Latramnus and Radbertus. Notice also that the flexibility in the tradition this particular point in time. And notice again those two perennial issues and the close relationship there is between them at points between God language and predestination. And I would say in both of those contexts, notice the important contribution that Augustine makes.